0: Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still with their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? and open the scriptures to us. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Each week we're looking at one of the troubles, and there are many of them, but each week we're choosing one of the things that most trouble people today about Christianity, especially people in New York. And today's problem with Christianity centers around the Bible. And many people in a place like New York would say this, there are many good things in the Bible, but you shouldn't take every word of it literally. And having heard this for many years, never quite being sure what they meant, I now come to realize it means this. Uh, there are many good things in the Bible, but you shouldn't insist that everyone believe and follow everything in it because there are some things in the Bible that just are wrong. Some things are right, some things are wrong. Some things are good, some things are bad. Some things are historically uh Unreliable, there are legends that are in there and we don't really know what happened, uh, really or what was actually said. And much of the Bible is culturally regressive and, uh, it promotes certain views that are best left behind. So for these reasons, uh, good things in the Bible, but don't insist on it being entirely trustworthy and completely authoritative in everything it says. So what do we say to that? I'd like to argue to the contrary, of course. I'd like to argue that uh, you should trust the Bible. You can and should trust the Bible three ways. Historically, culturally, and uh, personally. Historically, culturally, you should trust the Bible, and most of all, personally. First, historically. Can we trust the Bible historically? Uh, many people today say that essentially the Bible, and especially the New Testament documents, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and his words and what he did, many people say, well, you know, these statements, these these accounts, were concocted, as it were, by uh, the political winners. The, uh, the original Jesus, who knows what the original Jesus was like. But the idea that he claimed to be divine and he did miracles and he died on the cross and he was uh, raised and people saw him, all of those ideas, all of those accounts were, were written later by church leaders who were trying to consolidate their power and build their movement. We don't know what really happened. They suppressed the evidence of the original Jesus who was just a human teacher. What do we have to say to that? We have to say that that's not fair. It's not actually right. That there are several reasons. I'm only going to mention three, though if you stick around Redeemer, you'll hear even more as time goes on. But I'm going to give you three reasons why you can trust what the Bible says about Jesus, you can trust it as being historically reliable. First of all, the New Testament accounts of Jesus are written too early to be legends, too early. Uh, For example, look at the very, very beginning of this uh, passage. Here's the gospel of Luke. Luke has written this account of Jesus. And what does he say to his readers? He says, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning and I've checked what I've, what I've written, with verse 2, eyewitnesses. Luke is saying that even though he's writing like 30 or 40 years later, Luke is saying that lots and lots of people who actually saw Jesus and heard Jesus are still alive, and so you can check what I'm writing with them. Now, writing even more recently, uh, in other words, even closer to the events of Jesus' life, was St. Paul. And Paul, uh, who wrote his letters, only 15 or 20 years after, the uh... the uh... events of jesus life says things like this in first corinthians fifteen he says that many people saw jesus appear to them after his death and at one point he appeared jesus appeared to five hundred people at once and then paul says most of them are still alive and you can still go talk to them now paul could not possibly have written in a public document you know pr- promoting the christian faith that uh... There were 500 people who saw Jesus at once. Most of them are still alive, unless that was really the case, that there were 500 people who thought they saw Jesus at once. There they were. Or in Philippians 2, uh, Paul quotes a hymn of praise to Jesus' deity and divinity. Now, if Philippians was written only 15 years later, and this is a hymn that obviously had been written by somebody else even earlier, what do we know? Here's what we know. Jesus claims to be God the, the Christians worshipping Jesus as God, uh, the, uh, the, the, the resurrection appearances, the death and of res, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the miracles of Jesus, his claims, all these things happened because the Christians were worshipping Jesus as God from the beginning. From the beginning. You know, um the Da Vinci Code, that very big bestseller, depicts Constantine in 325 A.D. as, uh, basically decreeing Jesus' divinity and suppressing all evidence of his original uh, life as a human teacher. Of course, as we see, uh, the documents of the New Testament are way too early for that to be true. Many people say, "Oh, yo, Da Vinci Code is a fiction, and most people who read it know that the characters, the main characters are fictional, but they tend to think that that idea, that divinity of Jesus was a later teaching that suppressed the earlier teaching of Jesus' uh, uh, humanity, they think that that was historically the case. It's just not true at all. In fact, one historian reading the Da Vinci Code said this, a real historian after reading the Da Vinci Code said, Dan Brown says that when the Emperor Constantine declared Jesus divine, Christianity won the religious competition in the Roman Empire by an exercise of power rather than by any attraction it exerted. In actual historical fact, the church had won that competition long before that time before it had any power when it was still under sporadic persecution. If a historian were cynical you would say Constantine chose Christianity because it had already won and he wanted to back a winner and so what basically what we see is the New Testament documents essentially show that what what Jesus said his death his resurrection his claims to be deity those things really happen they're written you could write documents two or three hundred years later when all the eyewitnesses were dead and say anything you wanted about a figure especially back then but you couldn't say Jesus was crucified when thousands of people both pro and con were still alive who had seen whether he was or not if Jesus hadn't been crucified if Jesus hadn't uh, there hadn't been appearances after his his death if there hadn't been an empty tomb if he hadn't made these claims and these public documents went around claiming all these things Christianity would never have gotten off the ground these documents are written too early to be legends number 1 number 2 the documents are too counterproductive in their content to be legends Too counterproductive. Why? Well, the theory is that the the Bible doesn't give you what actually happened. Instead, what you have here in the Gospels is what the church leaders wanted you to believe happened. Because this is the view of Jesus that helps them consolidate their power and and, uh, build their movement. Oh, really? Okay. Well, if I'm a church leader, you know, living about uh, 80 years, 70 years after Jesus... And I'm concocting these stories. What I put in there, that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane asked the Father if he could get out of it. What I put in there, that Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane says, the Father, can I get out of this salvation thing? Can this cup pass from me? What I put, secondly, Jesus on the cross saying, you've forsaken me, to God. See, those passages are confusing and offensive today, let alone to first century readers. Or, if I was making up these stories, what I put in, what we see down here in verse 24, and that is all the original resurrection witnesses, all the people who first saw Jesus raised from the dead, were women. At a time when women's testimony was not admissible evidence in court because of their low social status, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all say the original eyewitnesses were women. If you were making that up, you would never make women the eyewitnesses if you 're trying to consolidate your power, you would never say that not only that the leaders of the early church were the successors of the apostles when you actually get into the New Testament and see the apostles on every page, the apostles look like jerks, they look like fools they look they look uh, slow of heart they, they, they look like cowards they they, they, they they look terrible. Why, if you were a leader of the early church, would you make up any of those accounts any of those stories any of those features you wouldn 't the only possible explanation for them being in the text is if they happen. They don't help any other way. They're totally counterproductive for the, the power of the leaders of the early church. So the New Testament documents are too early to be legends, they're too counterproductive, and lastly, and real briefly, they're too detailed in their form. One of the problems with reading the Gospels and say, oh, these things would be legends, we don't know much about ancient fiction. See, modern fiction, since the 18th century, in the West, developed a genre called the novel, or the short story, in which you have realistic fiction. And realistic fiction, is written almost like history, very, very detailed. But in ancient times, legends were not written like that. Epics, myths were not written like that. You would never start a myth off. Go ahead. Find the things. Go, go read Beowulf. Go read the Greek myths, the Roman myths. Go read anything. They don't start like this. See? I have myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning and checked it with the eyewitnesses. And C.S. Lewis, who was a real expert in ancient literature, says this. Looking at the Gospels, he says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. The Gospel texts, of those texts, there's only two possible views. Either this is reportage, either this is historical reportage, Or else, some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. He's a professor, you know, kind of condescending there at the end. (laughs) But here's the point. These things don't have the form of legends. These things are written too early to be legends. These things are too counterproductive to be legends. You can trust them. They tell you basically what really happened. So you can trust the Bible historically. Okay, you say you just did the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Well, you know, it's a, it's just a sermon. So let's keep moving. <laughs> Stick around Redeemer, you'll hear about everything. But for now, you can trust it historically. And besides that, you have to remember once you realize that, that the, what the New Testament says about Jesus is reliable, you look and see what Jesus thought about the Old Testament. He saw it as very authoritative. It all fits together. So first of all, you can. You can take it historically. Secondly, you can trust it culturally. Now, what do I mean by that? I would say in the last 20 years, and I've been here for most of the 20 years, I've been in New York, there's been a shift where people are more troubled by the cultural uh, aspects of the Bible than they are by the historical. And what I mean by that is people read things in the Bible that they consider offensive, primitive, regressive, uh, they see things in the Bible, they say, look at this, it teaches this, and that's awful. I, we got over that. We're beyond that. Let's, it's better to leave that in the past. And so many people say, well, there's parts of the Bible that are good, but there's also parts that are primitive, regressive, and we can't, we, you know, we can't accept today. What are we going to do with this one? Um, I can't go down the list of things in the Bible that offend New Yorkers because, A, it's a very long list, and B, it shifts around all the time, which is one of my points. Instead, I would like to give you three ways to handle any text of the Bible that seems to offend you and maybe make it hard for you to keep on going and exploring or accepting or living the Christian faith. Three things you can do when you get to a text of the Bible that really offends or upsets you. Okay, three things. Number one, first of all, please consider the possibility that it doesn't teach what you think it teaches. Please consider that it doesn't really teach what you think it teaches. Uh, in here, and we'll get back to this in a minute, you notice the Emmaus disciples are very upset. Why? As Jesus is going to show them, uh, they think the Bible teaches something it doesn't. <laughs> They're all upset, you see. But, but Jesus says, well, you know, you didn't really understand this. This is not what the Bible teaches. It teaches this. You need to consider that. You need to be patient with those texts. Let me give you a, a personal example. Many years ago, when I first started reading the book of Genesis, it was very upsetting to me because here's all these spiritual heroes, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. These are your heroes, spiritual heroes, and look how they treat women. It's pretty awful. Have you read the book of Genesis recently? Uh, First of all, they all engage in polygamy, of course. They all have multiple wives, which puts the husband, puts the man absolutely in the power seat. Then they, uh, they buy and sell the wives. I mean, they pay, they pay fathers, the fathers of the wives to get them, and there's bride prices and all that. And there's all these patriarchal institutions, and there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. These are our exemplars. These are our heroes. How do we handle that? It was very upsetting to me. Then, also, by the way, many years ago now, uh, a book came out called The Art of Biblical Narrative written by Robert Alter and Robert Alter is a Jewish uh, uh a Jewish scholar and a Jewish uh, a, a an expert in ancient Jewish literature he teaches at Berkeley and in that um book he said something astounding to me he says there are two institutions you see in the book of Genesis that were universal in ancient cultures one was polygamy one was primogeniture Polygamy, you know, obviously multiple wives, the husband has multiple wives. Primogeniture was that the oldest son got everything, got all the power, got all the money so that, and basically ruled over everyone else in the, uh, in the family. You know. So it's very patriarchal. Polygamy and primogeniture. He says, however, when you actually read the text of Genesis, you'll see two things. First of all, in every generation, polygamy wreaks havoc. In every generation, having multiple wives is an absolute disaster, socially, culturally, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, familially, every way. And secondly, when it comes to primogeniture, in every single generation, God always favors the younger son over the older. It's always Abel, not Cain. It's always Isaac, not Ishmael. It's always uh, Jacob, not Esau. And Robert Walter says... He says, if you actually realize what Genesis is doing, it is subverting, not supporting, it is subverting, it is overturning those ancient patriarchal institutions at every spot. And if you don't really read it, if you don't understand that, you haven't learned how to read. There's another arrogant professor. <laughs> when, I, when I heard that, when I saw that, and I started rereading the, the book of Genesis, I loved it. And I'll bet you some of you love it here too, right? I loved it. But then it hit me. I remember that I immediately said, what if when I was younger, I had just dropped the whole thing because of this? What if I just drop kicked the Bible and Christianity? What if I and missed out on the personal relationship with Christ and missed out on everything I've had because I just couldn't understand why those spiritual heroes were such, you know, were such uh, paternalistic things. And I I thought it was teaching something it wasn't teaching. Please consider and be patient Please consider the possibility the text is not teaching what you think it's teaching, number one. Number two, please consider the possibility that you are misunderstanding what the Bible teaches because of your own cultural blinders, your own cultural blinders. The Emmaus disciples understandably misunderstand, understandably misunderstand, uh, the, the prophecies about the Messiah because as Jews, they were really only thinking of the redemption of Israel. They actually say that in verse 20 and 21. And they weren't thinking of the redemption of the whole world. And therefore, they had cultural blinders on. They were trying to read the prophecies, and they misread them. That's why they were so they couldn't understand why Jesus did what he did. In the same way, I want you to consider how easy it is. I'm going to give you one case study because I think actually it actually comes up a lot with New Yorkers. Uh, as a reason not to believe the Bible, it is very easy to read a passage of the Bible, read it through your cultural blinders and therefore misunderstand what it's actually teaching. Now, let me give you the, my, here's my example is slavery. I can't tell you how often I hear people say, well, the Bible condones slavery and that was wrong. So who knows what else it's saying that's wrong? Or many, many times people say, the Bible condones slavery and that was wrong, and therefore it's wrong on this as well. I mean, so very often people start with that as the premise and they go off in various directions to undermine biblical authority. And I want to ask a question. Does the Bible actually condone slavery? Well, of course, you say. Look at these passages where Paul says, slaves obey your masters. There it is. He condones slavery. But, you now, if you actually go into one, the, one book of the New Testament, where Paul actually talks to a master-servant relationship. He talks both to Onesimus, who is the servant, and and Philemon, the master. If you actually read that book and you see how Paul talks and you see how that relationship works between Onesimus and Philemon, you begin to realize this is more like something you might call indentured servanthood. It's not what we think of as slavery, and that's the point. When you and I... Read what the Bible, when you see, and I see the word slave in the Bible, you immediately think of 17th, 18th, and 19th century New World slavery, race-based, African slavery. That's immediately what you and I think of. And when you do that, when you read what the Bible says, when you see the Bible slave and you read it through those blinders, you actually aren't, aren't quite understanding what the Bible's teaching. Murray Harris, some years ago, Uh, It's a historian who wrote a book about what slavery was like in the first century Greco-Roman world. In the first century Greco-Roman world, the slaves that Paul was talking to, you need to know this. He says, interestingly enough, he says, in Greco-Roman times, number one, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like everyone else and were never segregated off from the rest of society in any way. Number two, slaves were more educated than their owners in many cases and many times held high managerial positions. Number three, from a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not themselves usually poor and often accrued enough personal capital to buy themselves out. Number four, very few persons were slaves for life in the first century, most expected to be manumitted after about 10 years or by their late 30s at the latest. In contrast... New world slavery, 17th, 18th, 19th slavery, century slavery, was race-based, and its default mode was slavery for life. Also, the African slave trade was begun and resourced through kidnapping, which the Bible unconditionally condemns in First Timothy 1, 9 to 11, and Deuteronomy 24, 7. Therefore, while the early Christians, like St. Paul, facing first-century slavery discouraged it, like Paul was always saying to slaves, get free if you can, but didn't go on a campaign to end it. 18th and 19th century Christians, when faced with New World-style slavery, did work for its complete abolition because it could not be squared in any way with biblical teaching. So the point is that when you hear somebody say, the Bible condones slavery, you say, no, it didn't. Not the way you and I define slavery. It's not talking about that. Maybe we ought to use a different word there when we translate it. Oh, you say, rightly so, didn't people in the South... Use those biblical passages, slaves obey your masters, in order to try to subjugate the African slaves? Yes. But they were reading it through their cultural blinders, too. It was an absolutely illegitimate twisting and perversion of what the Scripture taught. And therefore, please consider the possibility, because I can give you a lot of other examples, but there's no time, that when you read something in the Scripture, and it seems very offensive, you're reading it through your cultural blinders. So, secondly, you might just be taking it wrong. First of all, secondly, you might be taking it wrong because of your cultural blinders. But thirdly, you may be getting offended by certain biblical texts because of an unexamined assumption of the superiority of your cultural moment. Because of the unexamined assumption of the superiority of your cultural moment. See, most of us in New York City read a certain passage of the Scripture and say, oh, that's so regressive and so offensive. But that's because in our culture, that's a problem, that particular biblical passage. But in other cultures, in other parts of the world today, that passage is fine, and some other culture, some other passage that you think is fine, they're having trouble with. So, for example, in individualistic Western societies, you read the Bible, and what the Bible says about sex is a problem. But when you read what the Bible says about forgiveness forgive your enemy let it go 70 times seven uh turn the other cheek when your enemy asks for uh, your shirt give him your cloak as well and we say how wonderful see we're down on that guilt thing you know we don't like that this is great so what the bible says about sex that's a problem regressive what the bible says about forgiveness isn't that wonderful go to the middle east let them read the bible what the bible says about sex is pretty good probably not strict enough but what the Bible says about forgiving your enemies is absolutely crazy. You're crazy. You'd be destroyed if you did anything like that. Because that's not an individualistic society. It's, 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 it's not a guilt culture. It's a shame culture. And let me ask you a question. If you're offended by something in the Bible, why should your cultural sensibilities trump everybody else's? Why should we get rid of the Bible because it offends your culture? Don't you see what I mean by saying you may have the unexamined assumption that your culture is superior to everybody else's, let me ask you to do a thought experiment with me for a second. Thought experiment. If the Bible really was the revelation of God, and therefore it wasn't the product of any one culture but came from God, wouldn't it contradict every culture in some point? I mean, each culture would be different, but wouldn't it have to contradict each culture at some point? And therefore, wouldn't it have, if it's really from God, wouldn't it have to it would have to offend your cultural sensibilities at some point. And therefore, when you read the Bible and you find some part of it outrageous and offensive, that's proof that it's probably true. That it's probably from God. It's 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 not a reason to, to say the Bible isn't God's word. It's a reason to say it is. So what in the world makes you think that, therefore, because this part or that part is offensive, I can just sort of kind of forget Christianity. And by the way, one more thing, very briefly, you know. Your great-grandchildren, if you have any, your great-grandchildren, will find a lot of what you think right now absolutely embarrassing. (laughs) Just like, let's face it, there are things that your great-grandparents believe, you know, that you found absolutely embarrassing. But, of course, the trouble is we don't know which of our beliefs are going to look really stupid to the future. And, therefore, if you sit and let your range of beliefs sit in judgment on the Bible, you might be... Missing out on a relationship with Jesus Christ. You might be missing out on all that Christianity can give you. You might be missing out on it all because it offends one of your beliefs that 50 years from now might be a laughingstock. So first of all, you can trust it historically. Second, you can trust it culturally. But thirdly, you have to be able to trust it personally. It is often hinted and sometimes said outright that people who believe in the absolute authority of the Bible in every part that you have to submit to the Bible in every part, that somehow that's a cold, you know, legalistic kind of faith. Of course it can be. But I would like to make the case that a completely authoritative Bible is the prerequisite for a warm personal relationship with God. It's not the enemy of it. So, for example, look at verse 32. When the disciples, the Emmaus disciples, look back on every single thing, Everything that was has been said, they summarize it like this. Were not our hearts burning within us as he opened to us the scripture? Now, in English, heart is the source of your... It's the seat of your emotions, right? When you and I think of heart, we mean the seat of our emotions. But in the Bible, the word heart is the seat of the whole person. And Greek scholars will tell you that that the, the this, this phrase, our hearts burning, hearts burn means an uncontrollable desire for someone. And here's what they're saying. They had a life-changing, whole life-changing, personal encounter with the Lord. They felt their hearts going out to them. They felt a love they'd never experienced before. When? When the scriptures were properly expounded to them. When they understood what they really meant. That's the way into this deep personal relationship with God. Notice... How Jesus goes at this. Verse 20 and 21 is almost comical, especially in light of what we know. Look at verse 20 and 21. He says, they handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He died on a cross, but we thought he was going to save us. See, we thought that he was going to save us, but he died on the cross. And Jesus turns to them and says, what? He says, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. He says, you misunderstood the scripture. Christ had to suffer these things and then enter his glory. Okay, well, why did they misunderstand? And here is the key, verse 27. The Bible will crush you into the ground if you don't understand verse 27. Some of you may have already, in a way, walked away from Christianity because you thought you tried to believe and obey the Bible. But because you didn't understand verse 27, it didn't work for you. Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What he's saying there is, everything in the Bible is about me. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he said, it's all about me. If you think the Bible is all about you, about what you must do and how you must live and how you have to do everything in order to get the blessing, then, of course, you don't need a Messiah who dies for you. All you need is the rules. But there are two ways and only two ways to read the Bible. You can read the Bibles if it's all about you and what you must do and what you have to you know, run around doing in order to get the blessing. Or you can read every part of the Bible if it's all about him and what he has done for you. Is it all about you or is it all about him? Let's do what he did that day. Let's begin it with Moses because that's all we have time to, just begin with Moses. What's Moses about? Look at the story of Moses and the Exodus and the Passover. What's it about? Is it about you? Is it about how you've got to be faithful like Moses and you've got to be brave so that you can face down Pharaoh and you've got to be a good leader so you can lead the children of Israel out? Is it all about you? Is that what Moses is there to teach you? Is that what that story is there? Is that what the scripture is teaching you? No. If you really, really listen to what the scripture is saying, that scripture, it shows you that God did not come to Moses and say, ah, you are such a good man. You know what? You deserve to be the leader. And because you are really faithful to me and obeying the Ten Commandments and all that sort of thing, I'm I'm going to let you lead the children of Israel out. No. Here's what he says. You all deserve to die because of your sins. Slay a lamb. Put the blood on the doorpost. Take shelter under the blood of that lamb. And when the angel of death comes by, you won't be paying for your sins. Now, if you read that Passover passage, Exodus 12, as if it's all about you, what do you say? Wow, wow. Okay, we better do it right. You know, we have to do it each year. We have to do it. We have to get it right. And we have to really do everything God says. But here's, can you imagine what must have happened on the road to Emmaus? Can you imagine what had happened in the disciples' hearts when Jesus says, do you really think that God, the holy God of the universe, put your sins away Because of those sweet, woolly little lambs? I'm the lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. I am God himself. Come into this world to absorb in myself your debt so that we can be together. You and I can be together for eternity. Kathy, my wife, says, you know what? When she goes to a place on Sunday and she hears somebody, including me, Talking about this Bible text is this, this is this, this is this. She said, very, I should take notes. It's like a lecture. But when you say, oh, it's really about Jesus, suddenly the lecture becomes a sermon. She says, suddenly something it, it, it moves from getting information in my head to changing my life. Because when Jesus says, the, the Passover, Moses, it's all about me. I'm the lamb. I've done this for you. You need to come to me. Then what happens? It gets personal. It becomes an encounter. You want him. You sense his presence. Maybe even now. See, when you see it's really about him, every part of begin with Moses, the rock, the rock of Moses smitten in the wilderness with a rod of justice. So why have water in the desert? That's Jesus. Jesus was smitten with the rod of God's justice so we could have water in this desert. Jesus is the tabernacle, of the temple. He's the he's the sacrifice. He's the altar. He's the light. He's the bread. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He's the king. It's all about him. It's not about you. Isn't that good news? And doesn't that make you want him? Don't you begin to feel your heart burn? Isn't there a kind of longing you have in your heart—a longing for purpose, a longing for infinite love, a longing for significance and security that nothing in this world can possibly satisfy? It's, your hearts are not going to be satisfied till you find him, and the way you find him is when some particular scripture text you see is really about him. It's understanding the scripture. But it's not just understanding that it's all about Jesus. Secondly, you have to still see it as all authoritative. Why? All authoritative. If you want that personal relationship, all. It's not just that you have to understand who it's about. You have to also submit to it. See, one of the ways that I know my wife and I have a really good personal relationship is that we argue and fight. Sure. What do I mean by that? Well, when Kathy and I were watching... The second version of Stepford Wives. She says, You know, th- th- there needs to be a third version. She says, You know, I just, I need to get, I don't know how much it costs to make a good movie nowadays, what, $70 million? I just have to find an investor. But I want to make Stepford Husbands. <laughs> Stepford Wives just doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's, it just, Stepford Husbands, he said, that'll make so much more money than Stepford Wives. And we talked about it. Well, why? Well, you know, she said, I just stick that little microchip in you and you never contradict me again. And we talked about the fact that, yes, no more conflict, no more fighting, right? No contradiction because you don't have a person anymore. you got a robot. If you have a person, if you're in a personal relationship, there has to be contradiction, there has to be conflict, there has to be arguing, it just has to happen. If it's gone, if it's not there at all, one of you or the other of you has stuck a microchip in the other person. Now, what if you have a Bible that you say, oh, I like a lot of things in the Bible. I like this and that, but not this part. This part offends me. This I don't like that. Oh, I would never do that. I don't believe in that. I like this part. I don't like this part. I want to ask you a question. How does your God speak to you and contradict you? How could your God ever tell you something you hate? How could God ever, your God ever infuriate you? He can't. Because unless you have a completely authoritative Bible that can contradict you and come after you, you've got a step for God. You've put a chip in him. In fact, you actually have a God of your own making. It's not a real God. It's just you, just writ large. A fully, absolutely, entirely authoritative and trustworthy Bible that you have to submit to whether you like it or not is not the enemy of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and God. It is... The precondition. My friends, the person who had the greatest relationship with God was Jesus. You say, well, of course he was God's son. Yeah, I know, but he was also, he came as a human being and therefore he was our example and he bled scripture. He was always talking about it. He was saying, scripture cannot be broken. Yes, of course, I could do that, Peter, but then how would the Scripture be fulfilled? Uh, you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. And when he confronted the devil, how did he do it? Scripture. When he confronted hell on the cross, he quoted Psalm 22. When you cut Jesus, he bled Scripture. That's how he had this relationship. That's how he became what he was. He was a. You say he was the Son of God, but he was a human being. And as a result, he shows us the relationship with Scripture we got to have. You want your hearts to burn within you? Do you want your, your, the, the deepest longings of your hearts to find their rest in a personal encounter with God? Go where the Scripture is expounded. Go to Bible studies where together in community you figure out what the Scripture says. Make sure that you personally dig into it all the time yourself as an individual. Okay. Did our hearts not burn within us? Has he opened to us the Scripture? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for granting us this... Uh, insight that we can trust the bible in fact we can't just it's not just we can or should trust the bible but without it we will not know you personally as we should and we ask that you would teach us how uh, to uh, apply these to our lives
0: Uh, meet with us now we ask it in jesus name amen